1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, about seven minutes after four o'clock. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Today we'll talk with Kevin Thompson. He is a pastor and author of Happily Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. He does a lot of marriage uh, counseling work. He's from. Uh, Arkansas. I think he's with Family Life today. He didn't say it specifically, but I think that's the case. Anyway, Kevin Thompson will join us to talk about his book, Happily, in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, of course, today we are remembering the uh, legacy of our 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush. As the body of the former president arrived in a flag-draped casket at the U.S. Capitol today, Vice President Mike Pence and other top lawmakers, they paid tribute to the 41st president of the United States, speaking to those mourning in the building's rotunda where uh, he will lie in state until Wednesday morning. The vice president reflected on the the former president's military record, his service, Uh, Bush, Pence said, never failed to answer the call to serve his country. The current vice president remembered when the elder Bush sent his son, who recently became a naval aviator, just like Bush once was, a handwritten letter in August. Shortly after Pence was told, Bush had stopped his practice of signing autographs. But little to my surprise, just in time for my son's winging, there not only came a signed photograph, but of course, a letter. The vice president said Bush was often known for sending handwritten letters to loved ones, friends and politicians, among others. Penn said that within the letter, Bush told his son, though we may not have met, I share the pride your father has for you during this momentous occasion. And I wish you many Kavu days ahead. All the best, uh, G. Bush. Well, Kavu, of course, is an acronym uh, for Navy pilots. I say, of course, I just found this out you know, an hour ago. Um, It's Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited, C-A-V-U. But you see, this is where my life is now, Bush said. Thanks to my family and my friends, my life is Kavu, Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. Well, in addition to serving as president, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush also served as a vice president for two terms under President Ronald Reagan. Uh, Vice President Pence said Bush joked that there was nothing substantive to to do at all uh, going into that job, referring to the vice presidency, but that when he served the nation as a president, he was a sound counselor and loyal advisor to an outsider who came to Washington, D.C. to shake things up, cut taxes, rebuild the military. And together they did just that. The former president's casket, along with members of the Bush family, arrived on uh, Capitol Hill just before 5 p.m. Eastern time today as part of the nation's formal farewell. A military honor guard marched the uh, Bush's uh, casket into the rotunda. Former presidents or prominent politicians customarily lie in state. Gerald Ford, who died at the end of 2006, was the last president to do so in late 2006 through early 2007. Once Bush lies in state, his casket will be transported by motorcade on Wednesday morning to the National Cathedral, where an invitation-only state funeral will be held. President Donald Trump, who ordered federal office's um, closed on wednesday for a national day of mourning he is scheduled to attend with first lady melania trump but he will not be speaking the former president's body will then return to houston where a public viewing of his casket will be uh, held before a private funeral service on thursday he'll be buried in a family plot at the george herbert walker bush presidential library and museum in college station earlier in the day um the uh, president and his family and the late president's former service dog, Sully, arrived at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., around 3.30 Eastern time. The casket was flown in from Ellington Field Joint Reserve Base, a Texas Air National Guard base aboard an aircraft uh, that often serves as Air Force One. Upon their arrival, the former first family was greeted with ceremonial music and a 21-gun salute before the casket was placed inside a hearse and taken to the rotunda. Former President George uh, Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, who spent a lifetime in public service and as the nation's leader, uh, scored a decisive victory over Saddam Hussein, but battled a a, a, uh, faltering economy. He died at 94. His family spokesman, John McGrath, said that Bush died shortly after 10 p.m. on Friday, about eight months after the death of his wife, Barbara Bush. Uh, He is survived by five children, including former President George uh, W. Bush, the former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. The sixth child died in early uh, childhood. Uh, The late former president also is survived by 17 grandchildren. Former President George W. Bush issued a statement uh, upon his father's death. Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Doro and I are saddened to announce that the 94th remarkable that after 94 remarkable years, our dear dad has died George H.W. Bush was a man of the highest character and the best dad a son or daughter could ask for. The entire Bush family is deeply grateful for 41's life and love, for the compassion of those who uh, have cared and prayed for Dad, and for the condolences of our friends and fellow citizens. Jeb Bush simply wrote on Twitter on Sunday morning, I already miss the greatest human being that I will ever know. Love you, Dad. President Trump, who's in Argentina attending the G20 summit, also issued a statement on behalf of himself and First Lady uh, Melania Trump. It read in part um, uh, that Melania and I join with a grieving nation to mourn the loss of former President uh, George H.W. Bush, who passed last night through his essential authenticity, disarming wit, An unwavering commitment to faith, family, and country, President Bush inspired generations of his fellow Americans to public service to be, in his words, a thousand points of illuminating light, the greatness of hope and opportunity of America to the world. George uh, Bush... Uh, The senior was known for his gentlemanly demeanor, his dedication to traditional American values, unwillingness to take on foreign despots like Iraq's Hussein and Panama's Manuel Noriega, and presiding over the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, In childhood, he was nicknamed Half-Half or H-A-V-E, half H-A-L-F, for his generosity in offering only youngsters half of whatever he had. After leaving office, he was often referred to as 41, shorthand for his status as America's 41st president, and to distinguish him from his son and fellow President George W. Bush, who was also known as 43. George Herbert Walker Bush was born June 12th in 1924 in Milton, Massachusetts, the son of Dorothy Walker and President Bush, um, a banker who later became a Republican senator from Connecticut. The family, which included four sons and a daughter, was wealthy and politically active. Bush attended Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, often graduated or rather after graduating from on his 18th birthday, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He was commissioned that same year and flew 58 combat missions in the Pacific. In 1944, he was hit by anti-aircraft fire 600 miles south of Japan but managed to bail out, and he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and three Air Medals. On January 6th of 1945, the 20-year-old Bush married 19-year-old Barbara Pierce of Rye, New York, whom he had met at a, a Christmas party three years earlier. They had four sons, George, Jeb, Neil, and Marvin, and two daughters, Robin and Dorothy. Uh, Robin died of leukemia at age three. Following World War II, he enrolled at Yale University, where his son George W. was born. Bush graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a degree in economics and was captain of the varsity baseball team. He loved baseball. He and Barbara then moved to Texas, where he worked in the oil uh, business And was elected to two terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. After losing a campaign for the Senate in 1970, Bush was appointed to a series of high level political positions. U.S. ambassador to the U.N., chairman of the Republican National Committee, chief of the U.S. liaison office in Beijing and director of the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. In 1980, he was elected to the first of two terms as Ronald Reagan's vice president, and in 1988 was nominated by the Republicans to carry the party's banner with Senator Dan Quayle of Indiana as his running mate in that year's presidential election. This America, his uh, brilliant uh, diversity, uh, diversity spread like stars, like thousand points of light, he said, in a broad and peaceful sky. He was speaking at the convention. The acceptance speech and a thousand points of light phrase came to be associated with his administration. This is America, a brilliant diversity spread like stars, like a thousand points of light in a broad and peaceful sky. Well, as uh, at his June 20th, 1989 inauguration, following his defeat of Democrat Michael Dukakis, Bush declared a new breeze is blowing and a world refreshed by freedom seems reborn. The totalitarian era is passing. And in fact, the world did dramatically change with the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Empire and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We're talking about the legacy of uh, Bush 41. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the life and legacy of Bush 41, who has gone home as a man of faith. Um, to be with his wife and daughter and to see the one he worshipped face to face. It was in January of 1989 that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, had his inauguration following his defeat of Democrat Michael Dukakis. He declared a new breeze was blowing and a world refreshed by freedom seemed reborn. The totalitarian era is passing. I would that that would have uh, come fully to pass. But in fact, the world did dramatically change with the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Empire and the fall of the Berlin Wall. But Bush faced new international challenges as well. In 1989, he sent American troops to Panama to depose that country's leader, General Manuel Noriega, who has returned uh, to the United States to stand trial as a drug trafficker. In 1990, he put together a 30-nation coalition to oppose Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. And in early 1991, launched Operation Desert Storm, a 100-hour land battle that routed the Iraqi army. But Bush, who once famously said, read my lips, no new taxes, was faced with economic discontent here at home that may have cost him a second term. Trying to reduce the deficit, he signed a bill to raise taxes and also had to deal with uh, uh, failing savings and loans. On the judicial front, he made two Supreme Court appointments, David Souter in 1990, Clarence Thomas in 91. And although occasionally criticized for his lack of eloquence, such as referring to a a focus on the larger picture as the vision thing. Bush's uh, comments also could be endearingly frank. Referring to his dislike for a particular vegetable, he once said, I do not like broccoli, and I haven't liked it since I was a little kid, and my mother made me eat it, and I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat more broccoli. Well, that, of course, created quite a stir as adults were concerned that that might influence young people, and they would no longer eat broccoli, and it might overturned the broccoli market, and so on. Following his defeat by Bill Clinton in 1992's election, George and Barbara Bush moved to Houston, where they had long maintained a hotel room as a legal address. They also spent time in Kennebunkport, Maine, where the Bush family has long had a waterside home. Uh, He made appearances on behalf of his son, George W. Bush, during his administration and in 2005, joined forces with uh, Bill Clinton, the man who defeated him to help those uh, devastated by Hurricane Katrina and by the Asian tsunami. Because you run against each other, that doesn't mean you're enemies, Bush said at the time, summing up his political philosophy. Politics doesn't have to be uncivil and nasty. Let me repeat that because we need to. Uh, remember those wise words today. Politics doesn't have to be uncivil and nasty. Well, active until his last years, uh, when his health confined him to a wheelchair, Bush celebrated his 90th birthday jumping out of a helicopter. Now, I used to think that was remarkable, and of course it is. But remember, he was a fighter pilot. So being afraid of heights and the thought of jumping from a plane would not have been all that unusual, even as a 90-year-old. More recently, Bush joined the four other living ex-presidents in, in the fall of 2017 for a concert in Texas to benefit victims of Hurricane Harvey Irma and Maria and the portrait of uh, then uh, President Herbert Walker Bush Barack Obama George W. Bush Bill Clinton and um, Billy um, Carter what's Carter's first name I've just lost his name Jimmy Carter was uh, quite a portrait well that will never uh, occur again of course. Well, as I mentioned, the vice president's body will lie in state on the U.S. Capitol until Wednesday. Many have been reflecting on um, uh, his legacy and George Herbert Walker Bush himself reflected on aging and the importance of family in a letter to his children. Uh, President Bush uh, never penned a proper memoir, but did write this, although there have been countless books written about him. Uh, By everyone from his wife and his sons to historians and former aides, um, he never wrote himself. And unlike some of his Oval Office predecessors and all of his successors, the 41st president never put pen to pad to tell his life story, despite living a colorful and historic life that saw him, among other things, become a decorated Navy pilot in World War II, head of the CIA, help bring about the end of this Cold War and uh, watch his son be sworn in as president. Instead of writing a memoir, he sent letters and kept a diary from the age of 18, where he laid down his thoughts about everything from family and love to, uh, to life and aging. With his passing on Friday at the age of 94, his presidential library is releasing excerpts from his letters and diaries as a tribute to his life and his legacy. And the first of the series, Bush wrote uh, in a letter to his children, dated September of 1998, about aging. Last year, there was only a tiny sense of time left of sand running through the glass. Bush continued, I want to put this aging on hold for a while now. I don't expect to be on the A-team anymore, but I want to play golf with you, and I want to fish or throw shoes, and I want to rejoice in your victories, and I want to be there uh, for you if you get a bad bounce in life. And no doubt you will, for the seas do indeed get rough. The former president went on to talk about being viscerally involved in the lives of his children. He had six children, former President George W. Bush, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, author Dorothy Bush Cook, Um, businessman Neil and Marvin Bush and Robin, who uh, died at age three of leukemia. In the letter, Bush also joked with his family about getting emotional in his old age and talks about living a happy life. If I shed tears easier now, try not to laugh at me because I'll lose more saline and that makes me feel like a sissy, Bush wrote. And besides, it's okay to cry if you're a man, a happy man, me. All Bushes cry easily when we're happy or counting our blessings or sad. In a video to accompany the excerpt, Bush's uh, presidential library cobbled together videos of the former president and his family playing horseshoes, riding in a speedboat and enjoying meals at their uh, estate in Kennebunkport, Maine. Remember the old song, I'll be there ready when you are, Bush wrote. Well, I'll be there ready when you are, where there is so much uh, excitement ahead, so many grandkids to watch grow. If, uh, if you need me, I'll, I'm here devotedly, Dad. Well, Bush will be buried Thursday at the Bush Library Center, according to officials. The Bush family is still um, uh, participating in and arranging details of those um, Events. Well, George Herbert Walker Bush was the last president to serve in combat in World War II. He joined the Navy, as I mentioned earlier, on his 18th birthday. He flew 58 combat missions in World War II, going on to win several honors, including a Distinguished Flying Cross and a Presidential Unit Citation. He died Friday night in Houston at 94. Again, the last president to serve in combat, in his case, in World War II. Well, three former presidents spoke recently about the life of President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, including his son, all acknowledging Bush 41 was one of the best prepared presidents in U.S. history. Uh, I think he's going to uh, go down as the greatest one-term president ever, Bush 43 told the news program on Sunday. Because of his foreign policy, deftly handling the end of the Cold War, for example, reunification of Germany. Barack Obama said he especially admires Bush 41's foreign policy. What people don't appreciate fully, even within uh, his own party, is the degree to which he had to land the plane when the Berlin Wall comes down, Bush told the uh, news magazine. You have chaos potentially in the former Soviet Union in Russia, he said. And uncertainty in Europe, all those things could have gone haywire at any point at the uh, restraint, the caution, the lack of spiking the football that uh, they showed us, I think, an enormous achievement. Again, quoting Barack Obama. Obama also offered this tribute to Bush, who died on Friday. He was a good uh, reminder that as fiercely as he was, uh, he may fight on policy and on issues that ultimately we're Americans first. And that kind of attitude is something that I think a lot of people miss. Well, President Obama visited with Bush in Houston last week, a sign of their admiration for each other. Bill Clinton read a letter Bush had left him in the Oval Office after the hard-fought 1992 presidential campaign, saying that his success as president would be the country's success. This letter is a statement of who he is. That's why he's the world-class human being in my book, he told the news magazine. Clinton said his friendship with his predecessor grew stronger over the years and in a world where everybody just um, everybody's just gotten each other all the time. I thought it was a good thing to show, he said. Well, Clinton added that his bond with Bush 41 was one of the greatest joys of his life. I think that history will be quite kind to him in my in his presidency. Clinton went on to say, and that's quite a compliment when you have the person uh, you ran against uh, and. who defeated you to to write to him so kindly and for that kind of regard to have survived. Quick break, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: One final thing on the passing of George Herbert Walker Bush West Stafford, who Is the director of Compassion International writes that if you saw my comment on Twitter that President Bush was a Compassion sponsor, let me take a moment to tell you a couple of precious stories that show his great heart and spirit. Years ago, he raised his hand, surrounded by security personnel, to get a child packet at a Compassion concert. I think it was either Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith or maybe both together. His security were surprised and freaked out. I was Compassion's president back then. His packet contained info on a little Filipino boy. I agreed with them. This must be kept a secret for his own security. This little boy must not know that his sponsor was the president of the United States. I agreed to censor all the letters between this little poverty stricken compassion child and the most powerful man in the world we had to use a secret name for President Bush to protect them both. At first, President Bush abided by all our security guidelines. He was so sweet, warm, and encouraging in his letters. And of course, he was quite the letter writer. He praised his boys' cute little hand-drawn pictures and progress in school. He drew pictures of his own. He encouraged him to do his best and always love and respect the people around him. Even now, it brings tears to my eyes to remember the heart of this great man toward a little boy a world away in so many ways. Well, Bush's sense of humor and impish spirit could last only so long, and he began to cleverly break the rules. It started with a picture of his dog. This is my dog, Millie. She knows many famous people. My favorite was when his son, George W. Bush, Bush 43, was president and 41, wrote another encrypted message. This year for Christmas, we are going to celebrate with my son at his house. He lives in a big white house. (laughs) Um, I told this to President George W. Bush and Laura at the state dinner I was invited to attend a few years later. He teared up, smiled, sighed and said, yep, that's my daddy. My heart aches with them and all of America at uh, at our loss of this great, great man. My resolve to honor him is to try to be a little more like him, kinder and gentler day by day. Just a sweet um, end to our reflection on the life of our 41st President. Well, taking a look at some of the developing news stories, the nation will begin saying goodbye to the president uh, today, and that will continue through Thursday. Uh, tributes have been pouring in uh, nationwide and from all around the world. An executive with past ties to the Clinton administration or to the Clintons themselves is among three people charged in an alleged scheme to defraud the Pentagon out of billions. Mexican Foreign Minister Marcello Ibrand uh, is in Washington to meet with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to discuss the Central American migrant crisis as authorities have closed a caravan shelter due to unsanitary conditions and fired FBI Director James James Comey has dropped his challenge to House Republicans' subpoena and is expected to testify later this week about alleged political bias in the agency. The 90-day trade truce reached at the G20 summit between the United States and China should boost financial markets through the rest of the year, some experts say, but the stock market could remain volatile. We'll just have to wait and see what actually happens. And on this day in 1992, the first telephone text message is sent by British engineer Neil Papworth. Who transmits the greeting, Merry Christmas, from his work computer in Newbury, Berkshire, to uh, Vodafone executive uh, Richard Jarvis' mobile phone? And on this day in 1964, police arrest some 800 students at the University of California at Berkeley, one day after the students storm the administration building and stage a massive sit in. Well, the G20 summit in Argentina. Uh, Achieved a few things. Uh, Stephen Yates, former deputy national security advisor to uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, um, on the body language of the uh, world leaders at G20 was rather interesting. He wrote that the leaders of the world's largest economic powers have agreed to overhaul the global body that regulates trade disputes, but they faced resistance from President Trump over the Paris Accord on climate change. And I mentioned last week that none of the uh, the nations who are signatories to it reach the goals they established for themselves. Some of the uh, main developments from uh, employee matching to reporting requirements um, – All G20 leaders call for reforming the World Trade Organization, and the issue will be discussed during the group's next summit in Osaka, Japan. That's in June. The gathering's final statement, however, didn't mention uh, protectionism after uh, negotiators said the United States objected to the wording. Uh, Trump has criticized the, world, uh, the WTO, World Trade uh, Organization, and taken aggressive trade policies targeting China and the European Union, as we know. Well, financial markets will be uh, cheered up by the U.S. announcement that the president and, uh, of the United States and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed at dinner after the summit to uh, have a 90-day truce in their trade battle. Uh, there were some awkward moments for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as some leaders called him out over the gruesome October killing of dissident Saudi newspaper columnist Jamal Khashoggi at the country's consulate in Istanbul. French President Emmanuel Macron was uh, captured on video seemingly lecturing Bill Salman at one point being heard saying, I am worried uh, you never listen to me and I am a man of my word. Macron said the Crown Prince only took note of his concern. British Prime Minister Theresa May also said she pressed bin Salman, as did others. Western leaders confronted Putin over Russia's recent seizure of Ukrainian naval vessels and crews, uh, but the diplomatic pressure didn't seem to bring either side closer to resolving the issue. Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of being responsible for the standoff. The president cited Russia's actions as the reason for uh, canceling a planned meeting with Putin on the sidelines of the summit. Putin did try to convince Trump and the leaders of uh, France and Germany that Russia's actions were justified, even pulling out a piece of paper and drawing a map of the disputed area to make his point. And the final communique, signed by all 20 member nations, said 19 of them reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Climate Accord. The only holdout, of course, was the United States, which has withdrawn from the pact. By the way, having exceeded the uh, standard that it would have set there, the other 20 members failed to reach theirs. Still, environmental groups praised the statement as welcome news that G20 leaders signed up. To the Paris Agreement, reaffirmed their commitment to its full implementation, and the resulting communique is important. Greenpeace said the uh, necessity of the U.S. being part of the effort to fight climate change cannot be denied, but this is a demonstration that the U.S. is still the odd one out. But again, the odd one out that actually met its goals. Well, after two years of negotiations, Trump signed a revised North American trade pact with the leaders of Canada and Mexico on the sidelines of the summit. The deal is meant to replace the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, which the president long denigrated as a disaster. The new pact won't take effect until approved by the legislatures of all three nations. And there are questions about the pact's prospects in the U.S. Congress, which will be dominated by Democrats Uh, In the House, Democrats and their allies in the labor movement are already demanding changes. But the president said on the way back to Washington that he plans to formally terminate NAFTA. So Congress will have to choose between accepting the new PAC or going without a trade accord at all and even the host country had uh, lowered expectations ahead of the summit saying before the gathering started that it might not be possible to reach a consensus for a final statement after sleepless days of round the clock talks by diplomats a communique was produced but analysts say leaders merely signed a watered down statement that skirted a trade and other contentious uh, issues the g20 veered all over the road at the summit and the leaders failed to fix trade which is widely seen as a priority for boosting growth and jobs and economies thomas Burns, a distinguished fellow at the Center for International Governance uh, uh, Innovation who has held leading roles at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in uh, Canada's government, said leaders buried their differences in obscure language and dropped language to fight protectionism, which had been uh, included in every G20 communique since the leaders' first summit. This is clearly a retrograde step forced by the United States intransigence he went on to say. So the next... Um G20 in June. We'll see what happens then. The city government of Tijuana announced on Saturday that it has closed down a migrant shelter at a sports complex close to the U.S. border that once held about 6,000 Central Americans who hope to get into the United States. Officials said all the migrants were being moved to a former concert venue, such as Uh, rather much farther from the border. The the city said in a statement, the sports complex shelter was closed because of bad sanitary conditions. Experts had expressed concerns about unsanitary conditions that had developed at the partly flooded sports complex where the migrants had been packed in uh, into a space adequate for half their number. Mud, lice, infestation, and respiratory infections were rampant. Meanwhile, in one of his first acts in office, Mexico's new president, Uh, has signed an agreement with his counterparts from the three Central American countries to establish a development plan to stem the flow of migrants seeking asylum in the United States. The foreign ministry said Saturday that the plan includes a fund to generate jobs in the region and aims to attract uh, the structural causes of migration from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Thousands, mostly Hondurans, have joined caravans in recent weeks. Dozens uh, uh, said that they are fleeing poverty and violence in their countries and their regions. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic. We're not there yet. Where where am I? Anyway, we'll be back in just a few moments, but we do have news and traffic coming. It's just not next. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. Who am I? Where am I? What time is it? Okay. It's fifty minutes after four o'clock. I've gotten myself together. Well, former FBI Director James Comey withdrew his legal challenge to a subpoena from the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee that has at least a few minutes left for him to testify next week behind closed doors. Well, in a reversal, Comey indicated he reached an agreement with House Republicans in a tweet on Sunday, one day before a judge said, Uh, had set to a rule on his effort to block the subpoena, as Comey hoped to convince lawmakers to allow a public hearing instead. Grateful for a fair hearing from judge. Hard to protect my rights without being in contempt, which I don't believe in. Well, in a court filing in federal court on Sunday, Comey's lawyers moved to withdraw his motion to quash the subpoena, writing, he has now reached an acceptable accommodation with the House Judiciary Committee. So we'll... We may or may not hear much of what comes of that event, but it will move forward. Well, conservative author Jerome Corsi on Monday filed a criminal and ethics complaint against special counsel Robert Mueller's team, accusing investigators of trying to bully him into giving false testimony against President Trump. Now, sadly, this is a tactic that is often used by prosecutors. So it's um, it's doubtful that he's going to get much traction out of this, but it does uh, reveals some of the um, the things that are disturbing about how these things work. Well, the complaint which Corsi has uh, threatened for days is the latest escalation between Mueller's team and its investigation targets. The 78-page document asserting the existence of a slow-motion coup against the president was filed to a range of uh, top law enforcement officials, including Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker, Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz, D.C.'s U.S. Attorney Jesse Liu, and the Bar. Dis- uh, discipline. Plenary Council, Dr. Corsey has been criminally threatened and coerced to tell a lie and call it the truth. The complaint states, "Well, Corsey, who wrote the anti-President Obama book, *The Obama Nation*, and is connected with political operative Roger Stone, has claimed for the past week that." He was being improperly pressured by Mueller's team to strike a plea deal, which uh, he now says he won't sign. According to Corsi's complaint, they wanted him to demonstrate that he acted as a liaison between Stone and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange on one side. And the Trump campaign on the other regarding the release of hacked emails from the Democratic National Committee. The complaint states that Mueller's office is now knowingly and deceitfully threatening to charge Dr. Corsi with an alleged false statement unless he gives them false testimony against Trump and others. The purported threat of a false statement charge, according to the uh, complaint, pertains to a July 2016 email from Stone asking him to get to Assange and get the uh, pending emails. his complaint says that he was unable to initially give accurate testimony on the uh, point until he could reload emails to his laptop. The complaint says he later amended his answer in an interview um, last week with Fox News' Tucker Carlson tonight. Of course, he said Mueller's team was happy with his answer until he couldn't give them what they wanted. Asked about uh, Monday's complaint, Mueller's spokesman Peter Carr said they would decline to comment, as did Justice Department spokesman. So another twist and turn uh, to uh, to watch. Special counsel and Mueller's investigation isn't likely to wrap up anytime soon, as many have been speculating uh, as once expected, based on events this week. Or I should say last week, former federal prosecutors say President Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to Mueller's uh, team of lying to Congress about the timing of a proposed Trump building project in Moscow. Mueller is also considering additional charges against former Trump campaign chairman Manafort for allegedly violating an earlier plea deal. And his um, Mueller's charge was to uncover crimes and indict people not right. A report, former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, or rather Ackerman, told The Daily Signal, expressing skepticism of reports the probe would wrap up before the the end of 2018. eighteen. Four weeks, uh, pundits and news reporters asserted that Mueller has, uh, was close to wrapping up the probe, possibly even by the end of the year, with a report detailing his legal team's finding. The Cohen uh, plea, uh, plea rather, also comes after the president's legal team provided written response to the prosecutor's questions. Uh, And again, uh, reflecting on it all, this week's events uh, have given Mueller a better vehicle to continue his investigation at a time when someone in the uh, public, uh, rather some in the public, were feeling investigation fatigue, (coughs) which they probably still do. Kevin Coffey, a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida, um, speculated, a Trump Tower in uh, Moscow was never built, but the negotiation, which Cohen now says continued into June of 2016, seems more significant than a meeting at the Trump Tower in New York that same month between a Russian lawyer and Trump campaign officials. Coffees added, uh, Mueller rather benefits from a personal lawyer for Trump trying to make a deal in Russia in 2016. Uh, Ackerman, who served on the team of special prosecutors Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski. Um, uh, during the Watergate investigation in the early 70s. Um, That is more suggestive of a direct connection than an isolated meeting to uh, to look at suggested opposition research. Still, aside from the probe's capacity to generate headlines, former prosecutors differ on how serious the new developments are on the uh, legal spectrum. So again, we'll just have to wait as this uh, particular branch of ongoing investigations develops. With a Republican president in place and soon to be Democrat uh, run House, the Department of Justice has conveniently remembered that they have the ability to prosecute people who lie to Congress. Well, this was a power they had inexplicably, uh, inexplicably forgotten. Uh, during the 10 years uh, that Democrats were benefiting from witnesses who lied. No doubt there should uh, be consequences and accountability if you testify to Congress under oath and blatantly lie or violate the law. But the DOJ seems to have different standards based on which party, uh, which political fortunes will be impacted. Uh, It's uh, this unequal application of justice that's dividing the country and threatens Uh, piece. Jason uh, Jason Chaffetz writes that Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former attorney, struck a plea deal with the Department of Justice for lying to Congress. But what about all the other egregious cases of misconduct uh, interacting with Congress? Why weren't those pursued or prosecuted? Let's look back at how a very similar case was handed just a few short years ago rather handled after FBI director James Comey announced there would be no charges against secretary of state Clinton or any of her associates for a variety of potential unlawful acts. Comey testified before the house oversight committee, Uh, Mr. Chaffetz was the chairman of that committee at the time. When I asked Comey specifically if he had reviewed Secretary Clinton's testimony before the Benghazi Select Committee, he confirmed the FBI never reviewed nor considered that testimony as chair of the Oversight Committee. I, along with the Judiciary uh, Chairman Bob Goodlatte, sent a formal request to the DOJ. We never even got a response. Note to uh, note the contradiction. Uh, Cohen is forced into a plea deal and Clinton's lies to Congress were not even reviewed. The inconsistent inconsistency always seems to conveniently favor the Democrats and penalize those connected to Donald Trump. Again, Jason Chaffetz, former member of Congress, uh, pointing out and asking the question, why is Michael Cohen prosecuted when Hillary Clinton, Eric Holder and Lois Lerner were not for similar actions that had much uh, more significant uh, import Well, Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi vowed to pass legislation that would put so-called dreamers, young undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children, on a pathway to citizenship when her party retakes control of Congress, lower chamber in January. America draws strength from our long, proud heritage as a nation of immigrants. In the majority, Democrats will work to reverse the Republicans' destructive anti-immigrant agenda, she said in a statement on Saturday, responding to a letter sent Thursday by the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Our House Democratic majority will once again pass the DREAM Act to end the uncertainty and fear inflicted on Patriotic young men and women across the country, end quote. Well, lawmakers in the caucus urged Pelosi, who is vying to secure her second spell as Speaker of the House during the upcoming congressional session to schedule votes on legislation to codify protections for recipients of the previous administration's deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA program and for immigrants with temporary protected status within the first 100 days of the 116th Congress. We will protect TPS recipients and those fleeing unimaginable violence. Pelosi added representative um, Adriano Espelier uh, told the New York, rather from New York uh, told uh, the news that one of the members of Congress who signed the letter to Pelosi, uh, that Democrats should move ahead expeditiously. Well, the congressman Uh, From New York added, House Democrats should try to pass the bills within the first 100 days. Well, the Trump administration tried to dismantle DACA, which covers approximately 800,000 undocumented immigrants in the fall of 2017. But a prolonged court battle has kept the program alive. The Department of Homeland Security also announced the eventual termination of TPS programs for El Salvador, Honduras, Sudan and Haiti. But a federal judge blocked that decision in early October. The government has uh, appealed the TPS court rulings and urged the Supreme Court to hear the DACA case. But the showdown is now uh, taking shape. We've got news and traffic coming up at what is actually the top of the hour. When we come back, we will hear in, um, in that hour from Kevin Thompson, pastor and author of Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love and Last. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty, Coin, and Currency. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Kevin Thompson. He is a pastor and an author. His book is titled Happily Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh. Love and last. That's coming up in the uh, next segment of today's program. We've uh, certainly been following the vice president, I should say the president, although it's not wrong to say vice president. But President George Herbert Walker Bush, his casket arrived at the U.S. Capitol for a ceremony uh, earlier today. And it's been uh, fascinating to watch the uh, events surrounding uh, his passing and how we here in the United States honor our uh, dead leaders, and uh, just watching some of the images was fascinating. Uh, in any event, we talked more about that in the first part of the program. If you'd like to hear that, you can go to our podcast where you can hear not only that part of the program, but it's in the program in its entirety. Well, the United Nations Human Rights Committee drafted a memo saying that abortion and physician-assisted suicide should be universal human rights. Hmm. The memo, or general comment on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, calls for abortion to be decriminalized everywhere. Again, undermining the sovereignty of nations who may decide for themselves whether or not abortion should be permitted within its boundaries. Nations and states should not introduce new barriers and should remove existing barriers to abortion, including barriers caused as a result of the existence of conscientious objection by individual medical providers. So not only are they suggesting that Uh, Abortion and physician assisted suicide should be human or universal human rights, but that those who are trained uh, medically should not be uh, given the right of conscience to avoid uh, doing those procedures. The committee that uh, put forward the draft is headed by former Chilean President Michelle Bachelet, according to uh, Crux. Aborting an unborn baby was illegal in Chile until August of 2017, when the nation's lawmakers ruled to decriminalize abortion in cases of rape, fetal um, uh, abnormalities and when the mother's life is in danger. Young people should have access to contraception as well as guaranteed access to post-abortion health care in all circumstances and on a confidential basis. In other words, without parental notice or convent, the draft also said. uh, Crux reported stigma against abortion should also be discouraged, the draft noted. So that requires some social engineering because there will always be a population that Um, believes in the value of human life, the sanctity of human life, that will oppose such a thing. But that needs to be dealt with, according to this U.N. committee. The U.N. Human Rights Committee successfully ordered the Irish government to pay roughly $34,000 to a, a citizen and provide her with psychological treatment in November of 2017 to compensate for her travel expense in order to obtain an abortion elsewhere. Uh, She had traveled from Ireland, where abortion was illegal at the time, to the U.K. for the procedure. She was the second woman compensated post-abortion on orders from the United Nations. Now, think about that for a moment A Harvard professor and human rights and international law specialist, Marianne Glendon, pushed back against the draft's proposal. First of all, she says, the human, the U.N. Human Rights Committee has no power to create human rights, to create human rights, uh, Glendon said. Uh, The committee's uh, assertion that abortion is a fundamental human right and it's uh, preposterous claim that abortion rights are derived from the right to life. Now, think about that for a moment. The right to abortion is derived from the right to life show how susceptible UN bodies are to lobbying by interest groups that would like to see their agenda items recognized as universal rights. The drafted copy also addressed physician-assisted suicide, directing medical professionals to facilitate the termination of life of afflicted adults, such as those who are terminally ill, who experience severe physical and mental pain and suffering, and who wish to die with dignity. And notice how broad that uh, is being defined. You don't have to be terminally ill, although it's It's listed, but you don't have to be terminally ill. If you have mental pain, if you are mentally ill, uh, that would qualify. If you are suffering, that would qualify under this uh, this draft. The American Academy of Family Physicians announced in early October that it no longer opposes physician-assisted suicide, instead taking a neutral position on the matter. I'm not sure you can take a neutral position as a governing body of significant influence, but that's what they are attempting to do. The Massachusetts Medical Society also voted to repeal its policy regarding assisted suicide and euthanasia in December, moving from its well-established opposition to neutral engagement on the practice. California, Colorado, Vermont, Hawaii, Montana, and Washington, along with Oregon, permit physician-assisted suicide uh, at this point, sadly. Well, the whereabouts of the Chinese scientist, He Q. Uh, who claims to have created the world's first gene-edited babies, remains unknown amid rumors that he's been arrested. Reports claim that he was placed under effective house arrest in Shenzhen after making the, an appearance at the Second International Summit on Human Genome Editing in Hong Kong last Wednesday. However, claims of his detention were dismissed by his former employer, Southern University of Science and Technology, according to... The South China Morning Post, the university declined to elaborate any further. His whereabouts, however, are unknown. And, of course, that lends itself to speculation. The scientist sparked global controversy last week when he announced in a YouTube video that he'd successfully used a gene editing tool to modify the DNA of two embryos. Apple Daily on Sunday reported that the scientists had been brought back to Shenzhen by the university president. Uh, the two also had a six hour meeting on his controversial research. Well, Chen is currently under house arrest on campus, the report said, adding that there were security personnel standing guard on university grounds. When asked about his uh, or rather he's. Uh, report uh, reported arrest. A spokesman for the Shenzhen-based university told South China Morning Post, right now nobody's information is accurate, only the official channels are. And what those official channels are is uh, open for some questioning. Uh, she declined to elaborate on the matter, saying we cannot answer any questions regarding the matter right now, but if we have any information, we will update it through our official channels. Well, the scientist gave his first public remarks on DNA manipulation at the Hong Kong conference, saying that he He modified the genetic material of twin girls to make them resistant to infection with the AIDS virus. Now, why he chose that thing in particular is unclear, except or unless perhaps the parent or parents uh, have HIV or AIDS. Well, his controversial work, uh, which earned him the nickname Chinese uh, Frankenstein, was condemned by the medical community and Chinese health officials who said they know nothing of the experiment. He is also facing, and that's the name, he is also facing an investigation from the Ministry of Science and Technology, which has ordered him to stop any research. So um, waiting to uh, find out what his uh, fate might be. Meanwhile, Mark Thiessen writes that gene editing is here and it's uh, an enormous threat. He writes in the Washington Post, the Chinese scientist claimed to have created the first genetically edited babies has invoked widespread condemnation from the science community. This is far too premature, one American genetic scientist told the Associated Press. But there is a larger question. Should we be doing this at all? Well, the Chinese scientist uh, used a gene editing technique known as CRISPR to alter the DNA of two children. In a Petri dish and attempted to make them resistant to HIV. This is not what has American scientists up at arms. In fact, researchers in the United States have done the same thing. In 2017, scientists at Oregon Health Sciences University used CRISPR to genetically alter human embryos to make them resistant to an unidentified disease. The difference is that he then implanted his edited embryos. The American researchers killed theirs. Now, the whole thing sounds fishy to me, but we'll continue. He writes, the prospect of genetically eliminating crippling diseases is certainly appealing, but this promise masks a darker reality. First, there is a difference between genetic engineering and the extremely promising field of gene therapy in which doctors use CRISPR technology to repair the DNA of defective, non-productive cells, allowing them to treat cancer, genetic disorders, and other diseases. In gene therapy, the genetic changes affect only the patient. In genetic engineering, scientists alter the entire genetic structure of the resulting human being, changes that are then passed on to future generations. Playing with humanity's genetic code could open a Pandora's box. Scientists will eventually be able to alter DNA, not just to protect against disease, but also to create genetically enhanced human beings. The same techniques that can eliminate muscular dystrophy might also be used to enhance muscles to improve strength or speed. Techniques used to eliminate dementia may also be harnessed to enhance memory and cognition. That would be have profound societal implications. Only the wealthy would be able to Afford made-to-order babies. This means the privileged few would be able to eliminate infections and improve the talent, beauty, structure, and IQ of their offspring, thus locking in their privilege for generations. Those at the bottom would not. This would be a death blow to the American dream, the idea that anyone who is willing to work hard in this country can rise up the economic ladder. Indeed, genetic engineering could actually eliminate opportunities for those at the bottom. For example, one path to a higher education for those at the bottom is scholarships for athletic or artistic talents. But in a world, a world rather of genetic engineering, those scholarships will disappear for the un- uh, enhanced poor and with them the opportunity to improve their economic prospects in life. Think inequality is bad today? Wait to see what it looks like in the genetically modified future. Well, that's certainly one perspective on the dangers of gene editing, that one class will uh, have superior opportunities over the other. But I think there are much uh, deeper and more troubling implications as well. We won't have time to go into them now, but it uh, is apparently uh, a technology, a capacity that's here to stay. And as is typically the case, uh, the capacity predates... Uh, The ethicist's ability to really help us think through, is this a good idea? Is this in our best interest, uh, generally speaking? What are the moral implications? And so on, this being just the latest example. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Kevin Thompson. He's the author of Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. It's a great book that offers some concrete uh, suggestions that can help avoid problems in uh, early in marriage or if you have them to identify them and how to respond. So we'll talk with uh, Kevin Thompson who's not only an author but also a pastor as well. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice show. Well, newly wedded bliss, it comes to an end. Marriage takes commitment. And it doesn't take long for bad, well, for bad habits to become just that, bad habits. Well, many couples wonder when the worst part will end and the better part will begin. A well, lead pastor and marriage conference speaker, Kevin A. Thompson, he has good news. The better part is always within reach with eight specific commitments to each other. Now, these commitments lead down the pathway to solve almost any problem marriages face and helps to prevent new ones from occurring. Happily is the title of the book. Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last uh, empowers couples to see marriage as bigger than themselves, to avoid um, both apathy and aggression, to release the desire for power, to make and maintain peace, and endure difficult times. Happily is a great resource that will help couples identify potential problems in a marriage so that they can prevent them from occurring, or certainly recurring. It encourages them to take an honest look at themselves to make the necessary changes to protect their marriage and ultimately to live in a climate of love, forgiveness, and mercy. It's a roadmap to living happily ever after. Well, Kevin A. Thompson is lead pastor of Community Bible Church, a growing multi-site church with four locations in western Arkansas. Every year, he meets with nearly 100 couples with a range of needs, from premarital counseling to navigating the most serious betrayals. A marriage and parenting conference speaker, he and his wife Jenny have two children. They live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And by the way, he also blogs at kevinthompson.com. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Well, I love the title of the book, Happily. It reminds us of the rest of that phrase, ever after, that we sometimes assume, because that's what entertainment media tells us, it just sort of happens. Either you're compatible or you're not, and if it doesn't happen, it must be that you're incompatible. But you remind us that, as I mentioned a moment ago, marriage takes commitment, and it takes a little work as well.
3: There's no doubt about that, Georgina. I think so often in our society, People think that a happy marriage is just a flip of a coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 50 50. Maybe we'll get lucky and get it. I just don't see it that way at all. I think it instead is a flip of the will. It, it takes this great intention now to make the effort to do the work. And you think about it there's nothing in life that's good that happens by accident, that we just drift into. We don't don't suddenly, if I lose 20 pounds and somebody asks me, how'd you lose 20 pounds? I don't say, you know, it's the most amazing thing. I just drifted into the vegetable aisle (laughs) at the grocery store. It doesn't happen that way. It takes this great deal of intention to lose weight, to get in shape, to learn, to be educated. The exact same thing is true about marriage. It takes a great deal of intention for a man and woman to love each other over a lifetime. It doesn't take a lot of intention to fall in love. But it takes a a great deal of intention to stay
2: in love. Yeah, yeah. And the rewards are, are priceless. When you make that commitment, when you exercise that intention, I've been married for 36 years. We're working on 37. And I can tell you the best is yet to come. It just gets better and better because of the commitments that we've made. That doesn't mean we haven't had challenges because we have. But working through them and living that commitment has been more rewarding than I think I could probably explain.
3: Oh, I can only imagine. You think about it, Georgine. I don't know about you, but uh, I've been watching today uh, the ceremonies with with President George H.W. Bush. And you think about it for a moment. I can't think of anybody that feels pity for George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, for the relationship that they have, for what's instead – they are our models of what we yes. desire, of what we long for, and how is it that we get that? And you think about it they they went through great tragedy and the loss of a child, mm-hmm. and how much time they had to spend apart at war, and all those various challenges of of having children that at times were rebellious and later became president, right? And, and so you think about the relationship that they had. That is what we pursue after, and I honestly believe. That if we can intentionally kind of direct our actions and activities to these basic commitments, uh, that this is much more available to to us uh, than we than we think, oftentimes
2: regardless of the examples we've had in our background, whether or not our parents were happily married, it's possible for all of us to live happily ever after uh, when we exercise that commitment. The subtitle of your book is Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. Can we just briefly go over those eight to give us some idea of what are the things that we need to be intentional about?
3: Absolutely. I think think the very foundation of of commitment of of where a healthy relationship begins is with the concept of humility, that we should happily humble ourselves from the very get go to recognize that we don't know what it takes to make a marriage work, that that we don't know what it's going to take to make this specific marriage work. And so by humbling ourselves ourselves, We are putting ourselves in a position to learn, to understand, to grow, to be open to outside influence of the experts of marriage books, of conferences, of of counselors. And so for me, it all begins with this concept of we need to happily humble ourselves. And then as we do that, there's a contrarian kind of second commitment, which is to happily embrace the hurt. And what that means to me is that marriage is never going to satisfy our every need. And so oftentimes we have this over-expectation of what our partner is supposed to do. We think that love is going to be easy, and we fall in love, that person is going to complete us, everything is going to be great. The reality is we are fallen people living in a fallen world, and I'm not going to always be the husband my wife needs. She's not always going to be the, the spouse that I need, and marriage itself. It is going to be less than what we want it to be in the ideal situation where it satisfies all of our needs. And yet the irony to me is that as we get our expectations right, as we begin to embrace the hurt, the sorrow of, of life and of marriage, it, it empowers us to appreciate the good and, and to appreciate the good in our spouse, to appreciate the good in ourselves, and to appreciate the good in marriage itself. And so as we humble ourselves and as we get our expectations right, uh, then we can begin to happily begin to avoid both apathy and aggression, and instead to work in in what I call a meek way, this strength, this power that's under control. So we're not apathetic, so we don't avoid issues and become lazy, but at the same time we're not aggressive. We don't attack. We don't abuse. Instead we work in this very meek kind of way. And the fourth commitment to me is – we have to happily see marriage as something bigger than us. I'm keenly aware of this with two young children, 13 and 10. Their their lives are directly impacted by how I love my wife. But it's more mm-hmm. than just that. There's a whole community that, that if, if Jenny and I stopped loving each other, there would be a ripple effect uh, of negative That's consequences right. to that. And, and so, yes, it's important that I love her. It's important just for us. It's, happiness is important for us. But our marriage is bigger than us. And for me, ultimately, our marriage is about bringing glory to God. That's right. And so it actually has this kind of eternal impact. And as we see marriage as bigger than us, I think that empowers us to work, empowers us to make effort, to understand that this is important. This is vital, not just to me, uh, but to other people as well. And then the fifth commitment is that we happily refuse power struggles, So often I see couples as I meet with them, and they are vying for power probably out of fear. They're trying to control one another and and be in charge, thinking that if I'm in charge, everything will be okay. But the reality is as we get in the midst of those power struggles, there's a great deal of strife that comes in. Instead, we need to humble ourselves to each other on a regular basis. There are times in which my wife leads. There are times in which I lead. There are times in which we submit to one another. And if we if we humble ourselves and submit to each other, that will we will we'll be able to refuse the power struggles in our lives. The sixth commitment to me is that we need to happily live in truth. It's within the concept of truth that our lives can flourish. And so we need to give up uh, the 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 value of appearance, the, the value of of projecting a persona uh, that is much greater uh, than what is the actual reality, and instead to deal with the truth, to deal with the struggles. Uh, that we have, to be willing to admit our need, to be willing to, to just say, here's what the truth is, in, in a loving, compassionate, and yet progressive kind of way. And then Commitment 7 is that we need to happily make peace. That peace isn't something that just naturally comes to us. Instead, it is made. I, I talked about in the book, it's striking to me, how many Nobel Peace Prize winners got divorced fascinating whenever you think about it they can mm. they can navigate the dance of international peace but they couldn't do it within their own bed and, and peace is something that has to be made and it has to be we have to learn how to communicate how to love each other how to, how to find the middle ground and then finally the, the final commitment is that we need to happily endure whatever may come this is the, the idea that life is not going to be easy And yet we are going to find a commitment that lasts to one another to understand whatever comes our way, we are together, and we're not going to fight against each other. Instead, we're going to fight alongside each other to find the solutions that we need in order to last. If you can commit yourself to these eight basic concepts, I think that this is what what actually makes a marriage work. This is how you do marriage in the proper way.
2: Mm. Those are so good. And of course, the book goes into much greater detail. Before we go to break, I just want to um, comment on the fourth commitment, which is happily seeing marriage as bigger than you. Uh, That's so countercultural, because it really is all about me. It's about satisfying my desires. And that individual has an obligation to meet all of my expectations. I know that one of the things my husband said to me before we were married was, balance your expectations. He wanted to warn me ahead of time, that he would fall short of whatever I might, you know, lofty view I might have of what our life together would be. And it really was the wisest thing I think he ever said to me, because it reminded me that really, it isn't just about satisfying, you know, all the, the things that I think I need. But really, this is a a relationship that requires give and take from both of us and that God has has much higher intentions than just two happy people living um, ever after.
3: That, I think that's very wise advice. And 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 I get it. I I get that a lot of people think that marriage is all about them. But you know what? Look around and let's see how well has that worked for us. (laughs) The reality is that whenever we pursue our own desires, we end up disappointed. And yet whenever we sacrifice our own desires and pursue the well-being of others, including our spouse, communities as well, then in that doing, we actually end up finding our own sense of satisfaction and happiness.
2: Yeah, it may feel counterintuitive, but that is precisely the the way God intends for us to live. We're going to take a quick break, but continue our conversation with Kevin Thompson. He is a pastor and author of Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Thompson. He is a pastor and an author. His latest book, Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. It's a great resource to help us anticipate difficulties that will inevitably come in marriage and to deal with those we're already experiencing so that we, too, can live happily ever after, laughing, loving one another in a relationship that will last. Let's talk about... um, the pride and humility, and how that impacts relationship.
3: You know, I think, I think the core problem of, of any issue within a marriage or within a relationship in general is this concept of pride. You, you think about whenever pride is at work within our lives, then anything my wife says that is negative instead of that that being a, a, a problem for us to work on, instead of that being a loving word for speaking to me of something that maybe we need to change, instead I see that as a personal attack, that it's coming after me. Uh, pride causes us to constantly fixate on the faults of our spouse instead of seeing what's good about them. It, pride uh, it makes us unable to be influenced by our spouse, to love them, uh, in, in the right way. Pride makes us fixate on ourselves, so we actually don't see uh, the well-being of our spouse at play. You, you think about it. You think of the major kind of typical problems within a marriage, adultery. What is that? That's pride. That is me believing that I don't have to live within the boundaries that I vowed to live within. Think about the problem of communication. Oftentimes, that's pride. I don't have the willingness to humbly listen to my spouse or to have the courage uh, to, to to speak what is the truth to my spouse. You think about money problems, oftentimes money problems are pride, that I want things that I simply cannot afford. So I think the root problem of any relationship, I would say the number one cause uh, uh, of most most of the reason people end up in my office is, is pride run amok.
2: hmm Now, I think all of us say, "Amen." that's absolutely the truth. The problem is we don't always see it in our our own lives. What are some of the early signs of pride in a marriage that we should should look for?
3: Yeah, I think whenever I think about pride within my own life, and I think that's where you have to start. You have to start within your own self of what's going on. I think any sense of comparison of your spouse to another, that's pride at work. You're wondering, do I deserve better than this in some way? I, I think any sense of contempt any concept of I don't even listen to my spouse anymore because uh, they aren't as, as smart as I am. They aren't on the same level playing field as I am. Any sign of contempt uh, would be a sign that, that pride is now somehow at play. Not listening to your spouse, I think, is a great example of pride. Not asking their opinion, not being aware of what's going on uh, throughout their day it begins to show that maybe we're fixated uh, a, a little bit too much on ourselves and, and not enough. Uh, on our spouse. Pride, it, it it oozes into every single crack into who we are if we don't stay on top of it on a regular basis. And, and probably the, the first sign of pride in your life is if you don't even think about it. If you're not even thinking about how pride plays uh, within your own heart and soul, it probably already owns you.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I will say about having been married for 36 years is that relationship reveals aspects of my true nature that I was unaware of before uh, getting married, things that I'm not particularly proud of. Um, can you talk about not only why this is helpful, but how this is a gift for us, and that's part of God's intention in marriage, that we learn our true nature through that relationship?
3: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. I, I I never knew... Uh, how bad I was until I got married, and then having kids having kids just kind of doubles that right I think before we get married, we have this ability uh to be alone to be isolated and so if i 'm having a bad day, I could go back to my dorm room or my apartment, uh, even though I had roommates, I could go back into my own room and be there by myself and kind of wait until I was in a better spot and then reemerge into the world. Well, whenever you get married, you can't do that. That person is there. Whenever you have kids, you can't do that. Those kids are even in the bathroom with you. There's just no place to hide at that moment. And yet I think it is a tremendous gift from God that, that marriage reveals our need for transformation. And, and I think the writers are right that ultimately our own happiness is not the primary goal of marriage, but instead it is the transformation of our own hearts. And, and marriage is a great avenue in which God can change us. But he can't change us until we recognize our faults, until we recognize our problems. And marriage will reveal to us our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our impatience, our inability to love. It will challenge us to live out our vows, to live out our commitments, to be gracious and kind and compassionate in all situations and circumstances. And so I think, I think it is a tremendous gift to us, even when the problems arise. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a way that God is opening our eyes to, to our desperate need for his grace,
2: One of the things you write about is mercy and why that's important to uh, to marriage. Can you um, talk about some of the behavioral traits that are associated with not having um, mercy in a relationship and why then it's important to have mercy?
3: Yeah, whenever I think about the concept of mercy, I, I, you know I mean where you all are in Portland, you know you have these uh, these great earthquakes, and, and what's happening is one land mass is pressing against the other and the friction begins to build until finally there's a giant slip and all the chaos that takes place. I think that happens in a lot of relationships. No matter how much you love your spouse, no matter how, how in tune you are on the same page you are, the reality is these two land masses are not always moving in the exact same direction. And, and there is a friction as we rub up against each other, as we try to go in separate directions. Mercy, to me, it is this great salve that just kind of lubricates the relationship. It allows us to ease the friction somewhat uh, and to have a love and a compassion and grace with one another as we really kind of bump into each other as we're heading in different directions. And so mercy, to me, expresses itself, sometimes in very small ways, sometimes just the concept of a please or a thank you, a recognition of the kindness of your spouse, a showing of kindness to them, a uh, uh, mercy can uh, can can understand when our spouse makes a mistake. We we know our own need for mercy, how we make mistakes as well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but there is this kindness and graciousness and and, and an ability to identify with our spouse uh, in the midst of it. If nothing else, mercy to me means the ability, when Jenny and I. Have a disagreement of some sort. Mercy is the one that goes to the other first, and, and, and reconnects and shows that you know what we're going to get through this in some way. Mercy listens when other people are tempted to to talk instead. Mercy to me is this great kind of hidden oil that that just kind of uh, brings a, a, a soothing nature to the relationship when when there's uh, abrasions or fractures. Uh, that are taking place. Mm,
2: That's so good. You write about proximity and one might assume if you're in a marriage, you're always in proximity to one another, but you make the point that it's so important to a marriage uh, that we need to be intentional about um, making, uh, uh, trying to be closer to one another. Can you um, tell us why that was important to include and what you mean by proximity being so important in a marriage?
3: I think so. It's It's a very basic kind of concept. I mean, you think about it Uh, boy and girl go out on their first date and uh, and as they start the dating relationship and as they really kind of have a, an affection for one another they sit close to each other in the car they hold hands in the movie theater uh, there's an excitement as, as one puts the arm around uh, the other and that's all great but especially as your career gets going as you have kids demands of what's going on if you're not very careful you, you actually aren't in the presence of the other nearly as much or well, mm-hmm. even when you are there's so much of the business of life that is taking place. If you're not very careful and if you're not intentional uh, about being close to each other, so much is lost. And, and just the concept of you think about it at night, if you both slide into bed at night and, uh, and the TV is on or, or your, the headphones are in and your, one of you is on the phone and the other one's doing something else, you, you lose something as compared to if you both slide into bed, and you just begin to talk, you hold hands, you touch each other. Proximity is, is something that if we're not paying attention to it, we will slowly begin to drift away from one another, touching each other less, talking less, actually being in the presence of each other uh, less. And then it becomes this great danger, uh, because I don't think we understand what is lost when a man comes home and just goes to his man cave. And the woman is someplace else in the house. Mm. If, if, a, if a couple will show some intention, now I get it. When the kids are out of the house, uh, I, I get that you're going to need some time alone and some space alone. But at this point in my life, with a 13 year old, and a 10 year old, and and I'm I'm pastoring a church, my wife is running her own business, and we're writing books on the side of this. We have to be intentional uh, about not just spending time together, but actually being in the presence of each other. And whenever that happens, uh, disagreements dissipate uh, somewhat. They're, a compassion can tend to, uh, kind of rises and grows. I can see the look in her eyes to understand the stress level that's going on within her own life. We can touch a little bit more, laugh a little bit more. Uh, proximity is something that nobody really pays attention to and yet so often, if we'll just spend a little bit more time together, a little bit more in, in in person with one another, it will greatly enhance our relationship.
2: Absolutely. Well, the book is titled Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. And there's certainly a great deal more wisdom in the book than our conversation in the limited time we have would reflect. But it would make a great gift to newlyweds and those who are anticipating marriage in the months ahead, as well as those of us who've been at it for a while to sort of remember the things that we need to make sure we're we're intentional about. Uh, Pastor Thompson, thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it very much.
3: Well, such an honor to be with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. By the way, you can follow his blog at kevintompson.com if you'd like to follow up with more information on how to live happily ever after. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back, you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, but don't don't weep. We'll be back tomorrow. I promise. I was so sad to uh, learn that another of the uh, soldiers who were injured in Afghanistan last week, the blast that ended the lives of 3 uh, men in uniform last week. A fourth has now died, a U.S. soldier, from wounds in that blast in Afghanistan last week. The Pentagon says that a fourth soldier has died. Uh, he suffered those wounds last week in a roadside bomb blast in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, Sergeant Jason Mitchell McClary died Sunday at the military hospital. In Germany, he was a 24-year-old and from Export, Pennsylvania. Three other service members were killed in that explosion last Tuesday in Ghazni, and two others uh, were wounded, and we can only hope and pray that they will survive their injuries. It was the deadliest attack against U.S. forces in Afghanistan this year. The Taliban claimed responsibility. McClary was signed to the 1st Striker Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division, based at Fort Carson Colorado, and for that family and the families of the other three, this is going to be a very different holiday season. I am reminded of the challenges that so many of our neighbors uh, will face as we move toward the holidays. It's a time of love, joy, peace, and um, and hope. And for many who have lost so much, our neighbors to the south in California and Paradise, who uh, have lost all of their material goods, and I, I think I mentioned. Um, One of the Singing Christmas Tree members had mentioned that 14 of her extended family members lost everything in that uh, that fire. And they had intentionally focused on what they gained and the benefits of being free from the stuff that they had accumulated. Now, that takes a lot to come to that conclusion under those circumstances. But so many of our neighbors are suffering. There's grief. There's disappointment. There's loss. I think about those on the other side of the U.S. border. Whatever side you are on whether or not uh, immigration should allow them into the country while being processed and all of that, um, I, I pity those who have t- made such a, a long journey to come to a border that they hoped would change life for them. Now, laws are important, and I, I think they need to be, um, they need to be followed. But when you look at the lives of the people who are there, whether or not they enter the United States, turn around and go home or remain in Mexico, my heart goes out to uh, to those who are looking for a place of of freedom and safety. So as we are enjoying um, the holidays, as we are singing joy to the world, I hope we are also mindful of those around us, the elderly person who lives maybe down the street or next door. Nobody's coming to the house. The family doesn't live nearby, or maybe there are no family members. And for them, Christmas is just another day of loneliness. Maybe we're thinking about um, uh, somebody who's homeless that we walk by or drive by every uh, every day, maybe doing something extraordinary um, that just says your life has value and um, I, I notice you, I, I see you. I don't know what uh, God might prompt you to do, but I've just reminded that there are many of our neighbors who are suffering. I, as you know, I returned recently from India, and I thought a lot about virtually everything in my life that I might complain about. I was at McDonald's earlier today, for example, and I was in the drive-thru. I was trying to quickly get something and come back to the office, and it seemed like it took forever. And then it occurred to me, I'm sitting in my car. I have a car. Uh, it's climate-controlled. Um, and I'm waiting for food that's been prepared for me and it's going to be the food that I've selected. Uh, I don't have to do anything, but uh, drive up to the window, put my arm out and take the food. I can eat it, um, at my leisure. And I'm going to go back to a climate controlled, comfortable office where I'll continue working and they pay me to be here. I really have very little to complain about, and I need to be more mindful of those, uh, who are less fortunate, fortunate. I hate that word. Um, but you know what I mean? Uh, anyway, um, and thinking about this uh, U.S. soldier who has died from his wounds in Afghanistan changes everything for his family uh, back here at home. If you might want to remember the McClary family as they are mourning the loss of their son. And uh, as I mentioned, he's from Pennsylvania. Taking a look at uh, this week on the Georgine Rice Show, tomorrow we're going to talk with Mary T. Letterleitner. Wow, Letterleitner. Uh, she's the author of Women in God's Mission, Accepting the Invitation to Serve and lead now for some women who are already in positions of leadership this may seem like ah eh, what's the big deal but for others um it's a real challenge to see how is god going to use me in uh in ministry and in mission so we'll talk with mary Le- letter lightner tomorrow about that On Wednesday, we're working on a couple of things. We had a great guest that had to change his date till Thursday. So I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you on Thursday. We're going to look at the Magi and who these guys were who came uh, to worship the king, that baby on Christmas or thereabouts. Uh, So we're looking forward to that on Thursday, but Wednesday, we're still putting some things together. Also on Thursday, we'll talk with Os Guinness. His latest book is Last Call for Liberty, how America's genius for freedom has become its greatest threat. And then on Friday, uh, we're looking forward to um, taking a look at the lighter side of the news. In fact, we've been collecting stuff. I think it's going to be a lot of fun uh, coming up on Friday. So that is our lineup uh, for this next week. And again, uh, we'll talk about women in God's mission, accepting the invitation to serve and lead. That gives me a great excuse to mention that um, Mission Connection is coming up in January, and it's a great opportunity if you've been thinking about mission. How does God want to use me as part of the Great Commission? Now, when we think about missions, you might think, where is God going to send me? Well, he doesn't send us all. There are other ways to go about it. In fact, as you know, I traveled with uh, India partners, and they support mission work that's being done by indigenous folks in India. They're doing great work. Maybe God is calling you to to fund, to underwrite the cost of mission somewhere else. Maybe he's calling you to short-term or long-term mission. Mission Connection is a great opportunity to really contemplate what opportunities are out there. What is God doing in places uh, that we're not reading about in the headlines. It's not even being covered in Christianity today. And yet we know, because we know God's word, that he is at work in ways that we can't even imagine. And it is extraordinary. I witnessed some of that in India uh, earlier this uh, this past month. So anyway, that's uh, coming up in January. We'll give you all the important details as we get a bit closer. Or you can go to missionconnection.org. And that is spelled with an X, connection. I'm not sure why they chose to do that because it makes it a little bit harder. But anyway, MissionConnection.org coming up in January. All right. Tomorrow we'll talk about women in God's mission, accepting the invitation to serve and lead. Mary Letterleitner will be my guest, and I hope you will be here to listen to that conversation. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.